Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. This is prime time on Money FM 89.3. I'm Rachel Kelly. Now, the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is visiting Singapore today in a move seen as reaffirming the importance of Southeast Asia in Washington's Indo-Pacific strategy. This comes just a day after high-level talks between the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi, in which Beijing accused the U.S. of treating China as an imaginary enemy. Joining me on the line to get the latest on Southeast Asia's significance to the U.S., especially in light of China tensions, is Curtis Chin, Senior Fellow at the Milken Institute. Curtis, thank you so much for joining us again today. Oh, it's always a delight to be with you and your colleagues. It's always good to have you on the show, Curtis. So let's start off because we do have U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Singapore today. How does this trip underscore um, the U.S. commitment to the region? Well, I think right off the bat, his being there is such an important message. And in many ways, the secretary's visit to Singapore overshadows the other big story, which is the deputy secretary of state. Sherman's going to China, usually China, U.S., that's the big story. But in many ways, because the secretary is you know, even going beyond Singapore, let's say to the Philippines, elsewhere in Southeast Asia, it underscores so importantly to the region for sure, but also back here in the U.S., where I happen to be during this pandemic, how important Southeast Asia is. So one, but his being there is so important, but also it gives this administration, remember the Biden administration has mm-hmm. only been in about six months. It gives it a chance to really begin to, to show uh, some of the, the people commitments, even behind the rhetoric that we're already hearing about the importance of economic trade and military engagement with all the Indo-Pacific region. And right you know, up front and center is, of course, Southeast Asia. Now, you mentioned the meeting between U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and China's foreign minister, as well as China's vice foreign minister. Can you talk to us about U.S.-China relations at the moment? Because there have been comments that, you know, they've reached a stalemate, but at the same time, we've seen trade flows looking pretty positive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, first, you know, just looking at the big picture in Mm -hmm. some ways, people had expected really a significant change uh, between President Biden uh, and President Trump, you know, given the rhetoric and how different uh, these individuals are. But in many ways, I can understand when people say, well, you know, President Biden, uh, his China policy in some ways is the same as Trump's policy, but actually just done much smarter. You know, there's more emphasis on partnership, more emphasis on engagement. And for me, I'm, I'm an American, so it's a very American view, mm. but I think that's terrific. Because in many ways, if I look at that U.S.-China relationship, which is not doing well uh, right now, um, I see also difficulties in China's relationship with a lot of what is going on, and a lot of neighbors uh, with regards uh, to Asia. So uh, so it's interesting that to, to separate in some ways, if we're ever able to, that geopolitical, that competitive dynamic, and then the day-to-day reality that business continues. And you're absolutely right in noting how the export figures ha- have gone mm-hmm. back. And you take a step back, think about it. It's really the United States and China through very different paths have come to this point in time where it's these two economies in many ways are back on track. 
uh, um, you know, uh, clearly both handled the pandemic so differently for good and bad in both ways. But right now, when I look at here in the United States and the, the numbers I'm seeing coming out of China, even though some somewhat a little bit soft, some of those uh, Chinese figures, but we're seeing that these big, great economies are moving forward despite all that's going on in this region. So Curtis, how are Washington and Beijing then showing that they can get to grips with their disagreements? Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, as you know, for those of you who listen to me uh, on your show, I'm Mr. Optimist. And so I like to say, and I do believe it in my heart, just that our two nations are speaking, the United States and China, that's a good thing. But if you're to read out the uh, kind of what they call the readouts of the meetings uh, in China, um, it's interesting what one side included or the other side didn't include and, and their interpretations uh, of it. Um, so there is hope, let's say in the area of climate change. You know, the reality is that if you add it all up, uh, China is the big polluter uh, in the world. But of course, if you divide it up by the number of people, you know, per country, you know, the U.S. comes out as worse. But when you look at the overall figures, you know, China needs also to get a handle uh, on how it deals with the environment. And hopefully that's something that both the United States and China can work on together, despite their very real and very important differences on a range of different areas. And so the readouts that, that I read about uh, that came out of the, the city of Tianjin uh, just in, in this, last, what, this last day uh, showed each side, again, pointing out different things, different issues that, with the other country, and really in many ways, not so much engaging, but talking by each other. And so clearly our hope is that that will begin to change, particularly you know, from the U.S. side, as the Biden administration begins to confirm and put in place some of the people that are Asia experts and that will help drive policy forward. So on this, actually, you know, when the Secretary Austin, the Defense Secretary, flew out to Singapore, I, I saw one article where it said that the key Defense Department Asia person, Eli Ratner, was actually mm -hmm. even just sworn in on the plane flying over. It's just showing how the United States is people behind the policies are still being put in place. From the Chinese side, I would say that they also need to think through what is it that they have to do to change. It's not just a burden on the US for these two countries to figure out how to get together. It's a burden on both countries to think through how they can move forward. I'm sure that's something that Singapore, you know, all of Southeast Asia will welcome if these two nations can figure out a way to move forward to the benefit of the entire region. And let's just rewind a minute and talk about those trade numbers as well, because U.S.-China monthly two-way trade reached record highs, and that's according to official Chinese data. Why has bilateral trade defied all expectations then? And do you think this boom will continue? Well, again, well, first I would uh, always caution people when they hmm. say I'm just citing uh, Chinese figures. Uh, there's always a little hmm. bit skepticism about Chinese data. Uh, and the uh, transparency of how that data is put together. But I think anecdotally, you, you look at the news reports out of both countries and you clearly see, in a way, people are buying again. You know, certainly in the United States, as this country begins to slowly reopen, um, they're beginning to, there's that pent up demand. And in fact, you know, clearly in the US, we see worries about inflation. You know, what's inflation driven by? You know, people are just buying more and more things combined with supply chain issues that, for example, issues with computer chips have led to, you know, less cars that, that, than really there is demand. Uh, uh, for, right? or there's more demand for the cars that, that, that there exist. You know, from the Chinese side also, keep in mind, if you look at China's history when it comes to uh, trade, they're probably more likely in many ways than the United States to politicize uh, trade. So you saw during the Trump era where China would kind of scale up or scale back 
agricultural purchases, uh, probably focused on the reality that Trump was trying to get that big trade deal done with China. So again, I think what we're seeing is that pent up demand beginning to play out in terms of purchases. And then also think about it, if you think about the world, it's really the United States and China that are more back on their feet than some of these other countries that we're seeing as suppliers of the, uh, the goods and services that both the United States and China wanted. Okay, Curtis. Now, before we check in on things at the Milken Institute, maybe you can share with us, how are things in the U.S. at the moment? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's somewhat mixed and uncertain where, you know, there's such a, a feeling that things are going for the better. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, mainland based in Southeast Asia, where if you just compare numbers in terms of deaths, you know, America had just a tragic year last year. But, and you look at the numbers of deaths, they aren't that high yet in key parts of Southeast Asia that are already somewhat locked down, like Thailand and Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, but when you look at the sentiment, the sentiment I hear coming out of these countries is not so positive because they worry that things are getting worse. They worry that their healthcare systems will be overwhelmed. The United States is a little bit different because remember, we still have a significant number of new cases of COVID every day. I think it was up to 40 or 50,000, gone up from when it went down to 10,000. But there's a feeling that things are getting better. Things are opening up with that, you know, that big worry now, will the Delta variant change all that again? So overall, I'd say it's a feeling that things are getting better, but worries about what this Delta variant could mean. I mean, the United States is so unique in a good and a bad way in that we have so many vaccines now that people aren't taking them. And I, I think that's led to President Biden also doing something terrific, which is the United States is now the number one donor of free vaccines to the world. So, you know, there used to be this whole issue of, you know, Chinese vaccine diplomacy versus U.S. vaccine diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Chinese, though, might be selling their Chinese vaccines. And as you know, some nations have some concerns about the, the effectiveness of the Chinese vaccine. I think we could all say that we hope every vaccine will work, whether it's Chinese or the United States. But the reality is that there's more and more demand for the, the Pfizer-type vaccine, the Moderna-type vaccine, than the Chinese-type vaccine. And so now the challenge the United United States is this optimism is going to continue is to figure out how do we get those who will not be vaccinated uh, vaccinated how do we convince them uh, to get those vaccines but so I'd say overall a positive feeling with a little bit of worries now about what will come with the spread of the Delta variant. Okay Curtis so lastly perhaps you can share with us what are you up to at the Milken Institute any events in the next few months? Oh, thank you for asking. You know, as you know, in my old life, I'd be like in Singapore once a month. You know, what a fantastic uh, city Singapore is. You know, one thing I'm excited about from the Milken Institute, again, this nonprofit uh, economic uh, think tank, nonpartisan think tank, is because of the, the demand for in-person meetings, but also because we've made such great progress with vaccines. On our books in the United States is our Milken Institute Global Conference in Los Angeles scheduled for the middle of October. Right now, the plans are for some 2,000 uh, people uh, really focused on how do we chart really a new course forward, you know, after this pandemic finally recedes, uh, not just the United States, but all around the world. So I'm excited about that. Fingers crossed that that will move forward, but such great demand from speakers and with sponsors and others to go in. My hope is that, you know, maybe we can figure out a Singapore US travel corridor and get some great people from Singapore uh, in, uh, um, in person versus virtual. 
And then again, if things go forward, yeah, I, you know, my next trip back to Asia could well be in the middle of November, where we have on the books working so closely, you know, with the terrific Singapore government on what will be our Asia summit in the middle of November. It'll be smaller scale, maybe 300 or so people. Uh, but I was so pleased to see that the Singapore Tourism uh, Award uh, went to the Milk Institute last year for its organization of last year's Asia summit last December, where we had everyone from Mike Milken coming by hologram uh, to some key executives from the region, as well as those in Singapore. So my hope is that as we move forward, that of course things will get better. Um, but I hope we can also realize, as I think Singapore has so wisely done, that recognize that this terrible disease may simply become kind of endemic, that we have to figure out a way to live with it and figure out a way once people are vaccinated to move forward. And I think that's where Singapore, again, can be such a great example to the region and certainly to the United States also. How do you figure out how to live with this so that economies can continue to move forward? And I think Milken Institute will be right there with Singapore and others uh, to try and drive that and drive discussions of how do we chart this new uh, way forward also. Okay, Curtis. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us again today. It's always a pleasure. We've been speaking with Curtis Chin, Senior Fellow at the Milken Institute. You're listening to Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.